I love who I am now. I, I love myself. I love my life. I love my ambition and my drive. And I love my talent and my ability. And I recognize everything that I am and that I have. And that somebody's going to see that one day and just think the exact same thing. And then that's going to be a good fit. And then we'll go from there. You know, like I'm in the middle of a breakup. Of course, I'm thinking about those things. I'm Jamie Dew. And this is a show of strength. Hey, it's Jamie here. It's the first Sunday of the month, which means we're back with Songs of Strength. This month, I sat down with a friend of mine who I've been working with since my first podcast, Ariel Fisher. Ariel opened up about a lot of her life, and I do want to issue a trigger warning off the top. There is discussion of uh, suicidal ideation, suicide, and self-harm in this episode. Despite all that, there's also a lot of hope in Ariel's world. She is wonderful at articulating the pain that she has been through, but she is in a place right now that she is hopeful and ready to start anew. She has let her experiences turn her into the young woman that she is, and she is a tremendous young woman. With that said, this is Ariel Fisher sharing her songs of strength. Fuck you, you're drunk and acting tough. I know you're sad you're not the only one who feels like that now. so much value in sharing stories and experiences and especially I think that's why you know shows like this are so important because it puts that out there for people to feel less alone and to recognize that they're not strange or weird or different and that their experiences are much more common than they think and not as a means of undervaluing their experiences far from it if anything it it, it adds more value to their experience because it feels less isolating mm-hmm and that's so important. Yes. Yeah, it's it's the reason we do this show ultimately. Does that does that make sense? So so let's start at the start and hear your story. When I was about 15, I went through a completely life-changing experience that would dictate my mental health and mental illness struggles uh, to this day. And probably for the rest of my life. Um, When I was 15, it was March break. And my dad and my brother and I went to this resort in Muskoka. It was still snowy and everything. And we went and just had fun and met some people while we were there. And there there weren't many people there because there's not a lot of resorts open in the winter in Muskoka, depending on where you are. No, it was March, so it was starting to warm up, but not much. And there was this family there. It was a mom and dad and their two sons. And their sons were about were 
uh, a year younger than me and two years older than me. And and you were you said fifteen. I was time, fifteen. Right? Yeah. Okay. So the the older boy, his name was Kevin. Um, he was seventeen, and we connected immediately in a way that at fifteen I had no concept of how to process, and it was it was immediate. It was a feeling of familiarity and comfort and attraction and. All of those things that, you know, when you're a teenager and your hormones are going insane and you're like, what is this? Right. Okay. And we kept in touch. So we got to know each other while we were there and we kept in touch. And then we were emailing back and forth a lot. And his family had, uh, his family lived in Oshawa. And we, um, we decided that we really cared about each other and we wanted to try dating. So I went with him and his family to, they had like a trailer as like a cottage in, uh, just outside of Oshawa. So they invited me to come for a weekend in the summer. And we, so I went and it was just, it was the beginning of what would be a five month relationship. And it was the first person I ever loved and I fell in love and I fell in love hard. And so did he. And during our relationship, he told me that he sometimes gets depressed and I had no language to deal with that at the time. I, this was my first exposure to what that means. And I didn't know how to process it, but it hurt me to hear that because I loved him so much that I didn't want to think about him in pain. So he tells me and I cry and I just, you know, I'm, you know, what can I do? I'm here for you, but I'm 15 years old, right? Right. I have no resources to be able to really process the weight of what that could potentially mean. His father... Uh, had lived with clinical depression his whole life and would need to be medicated his whole life. So he inherited that, unfortunately. And he was a very self-sufficient person, Kevin. He was really determined. And so he would frequently stop taking his medication because he felt like he should be able to control it himself. And that wound up backfiring, um, as as it tends to. Yeah. For if you if you are unaware, if you are on antidepressants, to simply stop taking them will actually plummet you further down than your lowest low before you were medicated. It it forms kind of like a bit of a roller coaster, and it makes healing and recovering and surviving for some people almost impossible. I will say this less technically: it can really fuck with your shit. Not everybody is going to hit their lowest lows when they do this. Mm-hmm. But you can severely damage yourself and put yourself in a position. You can put yourself in harm's way. And that's pretty much what wound up happening. Um, he was very intense and not, I think to an extent, he put a lot of stock in how I was able to make him feel, which is at that age of course that makes sense you find someone who makes you feel okay and when you've spent so long not being okay that's a big fucking deal but he had you know tried to get us to make promises to each other let's be together for at least a year let's make that pact and let's do this and let's do that and I love you and I want to be with you forever and all of these things and that started to scare me a little bit because I was very aware even at 15 I was like well I'm just 15 I don't know 
I can, there's no way for me to know if this is forever. I'm too young. You're too young. This is so intense. Well, when you're also, when you're 15, a 17 year old may as well be a 40 year old. Uh, give or take, you, you know, but it was, um, so I ended it because I recognized that it was, he was putting too much pressure on me and that it was unhealthy for both of us and that a decision had to be made and it broke my heart and it was so painful and so hard and just for warning because I'm such a raw nerve I tend to cry so that's probably going to happen in a second here so just bear with me and if it's painful for you sorry um but it was about three months later and we still talked and he called me and wanted to see me and we made plans for the next Friday to go night skiing at Blue Mountain. It was the winter. This was around, it wound up being around, um, this conversation happened in, it was in February and it was shortly after my birthday and my, my grandmother, my abuelita, my mom's mom had actually just passed away a couple of days before my birthday. So this would have been my 16th. And so it's February and he calls me and we're talking and we're connecting and I had been missing him and I had wanted to talk about getting back together. And we talked and I told him how much I missed him and we made our plans. And, um, and the next day, um, uh, the next day he hung himself and that was his way of calling me to say goodbye. And the day that we had planned on going night skiing wound up being the day of his funeral. And that put me into one of the most painful and difficult periods of my life. It, um, you run the gamut of emotions. Uh, you, you're angry and resentful and so sad and in so much pain and you miss them but you want to yell at them and you think they're selfish but you understand and it's confusing and at 16 that's that's way more I'm 44 and you've just yeah and it was a lot and it was uh I I was I was never I was never the same after that How, how could you be and it was hard because um my parents had no idea what to do. And I got the call actually from a friend of mine at the time who was a mutual friend because he lived in Oshawa. He lived in a different city. She was friends with a friend of his that went to his school. They contacted her and she told me. And I remember... That, that's how you found That's how the- I found out that he had died. And I remember I got the phone call and I was at my dad's place. And the phone was on the wall in the kitchen And I answered and she told me and she said that Kevin died and I, it, everything went fuzzy and I just, I, I, when I said, what are you talking about? It was someone else. It didn't sound like me. I didn't recognize my own voice because I was so choked up and I was so shocked that I, I sounded like a stranger. Um, uh, my, he called my mom. My parents had been split for many years at this point. So calls my mom, says what happens. And apparently both of them immediately knew it was suicide. They just knew. 
I didn't. I had no idea. I didn't find out it was suicide until like a while later because I just that that wouldn't have occurred to me. That wasn't something that I knew. I don't know how to properly articulate the depths that I sank to after that. And it was so hard because, and this is important to keep in mind, I was 16 years old, right? So aside from the fact that, okay, you're very young, a 16-year-old brain does not function like a 30-year-old brain does. No. And in your teen years, until you reach about 18, 19 years old, maybe even 20, that brain processes time and grief completely differently. It's still developing. Yeah, you're still developing. You're still developing. So while your brain is developing and at that age, and I did a lot of research after the fact and I learned a lot about this and like I saw a social worker and he was phenomenal and I was in therapy for a long time after that because obviously I would need to be. Um, And I, uh, I learned a lot about the way the brain functions and a teenage brain processes time much more slowly where a week feels like infinity. And the idea of grief is insurmountable. So the concept that the pain you're feeling today will dissipate and it may take a lot of time, but in time you will heal is incomprehensible to a teenage brain. Like physiologically, I'm not just saying like, oh, you're a teenager. You don't know shit. You can't, you know, you just don't understand ideas. No, physiologically, neurologically, our brains are at that age are just not capable of processing that information. So at 16, with an adolescent brain, starting to deal with exogenous depression and starting to deal with, you know, all of these things and these concepts and these painful ideas, it, um, it felt unending. It was a nightmare. And that year felt like eternity. And I, I mean, I never, there were a couple of nights where I had my Swiss army knife in my hand and because we were camping family, I had one, my brother had one and I never actually cut myself. I couldn't. And I never, I, there were times when I had like a bottle of pills in my hands and I debated it. You thought about self-harm. Oh, I did. I very much did because I thought something has to stop. You thought about like you had suicidal ideations or like you were self-harm, like were you like, like harming myself for catharsis? Yeah. No, it no. was it was suicidal. It was to, to wrap things up. Oh, yeah. It was to try and... And I think also in a weird way, it was to try and understand him, I think. Well, that's very interesting. And I don't mean that to sound so... No, no, no. That doesn't sound bad at all. But, but I can't even imagine. Of course, right? Like, I, I need to understand this, but the only way I can understand this is to experience it because that's how we learn through experience. Well, it was yes and no. It was a combination of if he was in even a fraction of this much pain, then maybe that was the only answer. And I can't see an end to this. There is no light at the end of the tunnel because, again, you know, neurological tendencies of a 16-year-old. So it seemed completely unending and totally insurmountable. And the shit hit the fan at school. I became ostracized because the, the, the girl that told me what had happened didn't like how I was interacting with a friend of hers that she was interested in. So she started bad-mouthing me around school and I became a pariah. So I literally had no friends. Like I was going through this alone with parents who, didn't under, who, who were doing their absolute best but were in over their heads as well. How could they not be? No. Yeah. So I, I was, I went through all of this completely alone 
Jesus Christ. And it was while being called a slut and while being called, you know, an asshole and an idiot and being put down and being teased at school and being laughed at in class and spread rumors about and you name it. Everything. The things they said about me, and I'm talking school-wide, like it was bad. And I, so all of it just compiled and was just completely impossible. And I, and I'm, and I made it through and by the end of high this school. Is, this is all here in Toronto? Like this is where you grew up? Yeah. Okay. And by the end of school, it kind of came to light what had actually happened and what I had been through and people were stunned because they had no idea. God. And they didn't know what I had been dealing with when they decided that I was no longer considered human to them and I got a lot of vindication after that there was a lot of apologizing there was a lot of attempts to make amends but largely I was just checked out but I got better I did I got better gradually I couldn't tell you exactly when and this was one of the things that my social worker at the time when I when I first started uh, going to therapy for this was one of the things that he had said to me was you know you're gonna feel like this for a long time but one day you're going to catch yourself smiling, even if it's just for a second. And then maybe a month later or several months later, you're going to catch yourself laughing more. And then before you know it, you're going to find yourself in a position where you're actually feeling happy again, even if it's just in brief moments. And eventually, this too shall pass. Eventually. But it takes time. Mm-hmm. And that actually became my first tattoo. So I have a tattoo on my ribcage that says, this too shall pass. Which is also something that stems from the story of King Solomon and he got a ring made to remind him that in the good times remember the bad and in the bad times remember the good. Have perspective and recognize that both will pass and life will be ups and downs and life will be waves and sometimes they'll be completely insurmountable and other times you'll be on top of the world but that that's natural and that that's normal and from that you can grow and you can flourish. And that's that whole situation for me was life changing and in in good ways and bad. And it'll be this February, it'll be 15 years, which kind of blows my mind. I was thinking about that this morning. I was like, fuck. Yeah. And I guess so. I guess that was that was the start. That kind of kicked things off for me. It was it also allowed me to get a bit more acquainted with how I am as well as who I am. So it was kind of the beginning of a lifelong journey of, of self-acquaintanceship, I guess, if that's a way of putting things, if that you makes sense. You just coined it. You just coined it. Done. Patented. That's right. Um, <laughs> but no, it was, it, I mean, it allowed me to start making sense of where I had been and who I had been. It just, I, yeah, it, it, <laughs> It yeah. forced me to grow up really fast. God, I bet. Um, well, there's no easy segue into talking about, you know, the conceit of the show, which is using music as therapy. And I'm curious if this was, you know, the time that you started to do that kind of thing. If um, you used, like, did you use music in, in that sort of therapeutic way, coping way? How, how did you um, deal with, you know, your pain and, and anxiety and that sort of thing 
It um, was it was the way it's always been for me in that sometimes it's a coping mechanism. Sometimes uh, I treat music sometimes exactly the way I treat film. If I'm in a bad way, if I'm having a depressive episode or a, a down week or a down month or whatever, or just particularly anxious if my anxiety kicks up, um, or something's happened, I've lost someone, I, I turn to material that will allow me to express those feelings that I'm having. So like I'll deliberately watch movies that will make me cry when I'm already down because for me, it helps me focus. It helps me channel all of the emotions that I'm feeling and direct it towards one thing. And then that allows me to regain control of it and to feel more in control of all of the things that I'm dealing with. And these are, these are things and concepts that are usually very difficult to grapple with. Sure. So this allows me to really hone in on that. And I do the same thing with music for, for in other cases. And like with this song specifically, it's the type of song that comes about at a very specific moment that articulates all of the things you're feeling and thinking and worried about without, it's like they've plugged into your brain and just produced something. So it wasn't something that really helped me cope so much as it was something that took what I was feeling and thinking and put it in front of me instead of outside, instead of in my head. So it's the song itself is called, I just don't think I'll ever get over you. It's by Colin Hay. And I heard it when I was about 16, 17 years old. And it just broke me. It was like Natalie Portman handed you some headphones. (laughs) I was convinced at that time that I couldn't love anybody ever again. I was convinced at that time that I was too broken for anyone to ever love me. Sure. I was convinced I would be alone. I would never feel anything like that for anyone ever again. I'd missed my chance because I didn't get back together with him in time or I didn't help him enough or I wasn't enough. I wasn't there enough. I, I couldn't do enough. It was always about enough and feelings of guilt around that and just this song like it's a little on the nose and I'm okay with that a lot of these songs are a little on the nose and again I'm okay with that but it's your songs they're my songs and it was so explicit and it's changed for me now that I'm an adult at the time it was very all-consuming oh I'm never gonna love again and all of these things and those were very real emotions and I struggled for many years to grapple with the idea that I could be lovable because after that I felt I felt so broken and un- unwantable uh, that the concept of somebody ever loving me, let alone the prospect of me ever loving anyone else, uh, felt impossible. But now as an adult and being able to look back on that, no, away from that 16-year-old brain that can't process time, um, I understand it in a more mature way. I hear this song and I recognize that for me, what was once this all-consuming dread of not being able to move on is now instead just the realization that, especially when you're a suicide survivor, those, those people imprint on you. That situation imprints on you. And it never goes away. Life moves on. And you, and you love again. And you continue to live. And the daily things happen. And, and, and the world continues to spin. But, but that that will always be such a fundamental puzzle piece of, of you. And, and that's what it means to me now. I drink good coffee every morning 
comes from a place that's far away. And when I'm done, I feel like talking without you It dances and it haunts me. The laughter still ringing in my ears. I still find pieces of your presence here. Even Want you thinking that I don't get asked to dinner? 'Cause I'm young to say that I sometimes do. Even though I may soon feel the touch of. Just don't think I'll ever get old. If I lived till I was hundred and two, I just don't.
<laughs> yeah, I mean... Colin Hay has a, has a wonderful way of, I don't, just expressing himself. Um, I just, you know, talking about music is like dancing about architecture, right? Um, <laughs> it's like, that's very good. It's not mine. I wish that was I mine, know. but it's, it's, it's. It, it's tough when you hear something and you have the context that somebody else has given it given to you mm-hmm. you know and those two things are woven together now and they'll be woven together for me forever mm, sorry <laughs> no that's that's fine <laughs> but it's it, it's a it's a wonderfully beautiful song without that context but once yeah. you when you add that layer on top it changes you know, because um, for a lot of people, that song is just about love. Sure. And that's, I think, for the most part, what it is about. But for Maybe. me, but for me, it was always about love and death. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and, and dealing with and coping with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, him talking about not taking strong whiskey, mm-hmm. you know, not not which not. is a lie. I still take lots of strong whiskey. <laughs> um, I should have brought some down. Um, yeah, like just. It's like you said, this too shall pass. Like this, the protagonists in this song obviously dealt with whatever they were dealing with for a long time. And uh, there's optimism. There's mm-hmm. a lot of optimism in that song, despite the, how fucking tear-jerkingly... The pain. ...sad it is, mm-hmm. you know? Because there's a God. lot of pain in that song, even unassociated with my stuff. Oh, sure. It's just his voice drips with it. Oh, yeah. Like at the best of times. If, if he were to sing me happy birthday, I would weep. It is you know? fair. That's fair. <laughs> Fuck. As somebody who is not the biggest fan of Dave Matthews Band, mm-hmm. I want you to take me through this. Because as I mentioned with the Colin Hay song, I think context is just a wonderful ingredient. You know, music... I think a lot of times people drink their music straight, mm. but music is a wonderful cocktail ingredient. You need some bitters in there and you need some other ingredients. And I'm very curious to hear what the other ingredients are for the song Mother, Father by the Dave Matthews Band. <laughs> Explain to me why a world so full of mystery, a place so bitter and still so sweet, so beautiful and yet so full of sad, sad mother, father. Please explain to me why forest march to desert speed, while snow capped mountains melt away. What do we tell our babies when do we say? Father, please explain to me How a man who rocks his child to sleep Pulls the trigger on his brother's heart He digs a hole right to the middle of this storm of hatred Mother, father, please explain to me How it could be so this world has come to be A precious balance in between Such cruelty and such kindness 
was always really easy for me to listen to because for me mother father uh, articulated a lot of the anger and frustration I actually felt towards my parents after Kevin and that's and and I say that and I I don't I, I say that but I mean it kind of lightly I I was angry at the time because my parents were supposed to be able to help me right when you think when you're a kid your parents are a source of comfort when you're a kid, your parents can take away the pain. They can make things better. They can give you advice. They can tell you exactly what's going to happen and make sure that it happens. They're infallible. And in going through what I went through so young, they became fallible fast. And I wasn't ready for that. And, you know, everybody has that moment where they recognize the fallibility of their parents. I needed them to be able to give me all of the answers because they always they had always been able to because everything I had gone through up until that point was something that they had context for was something that they had the resources to be able to be there for me for when this happened this threw all of our lives in in in, in a loop it threw a wrench in all of our lives of course. they hadn't they went through their own shit after after Kevin died because they were because they had they had been attached to him as well he was close to my age, so there was all sorts of other shit that fucked them up about that. They felt for you. They, they felt for his parents. Yep. They felt for... They felt for themselves. They were grieving, too. Of course. So it was, you know, there was, there were feelings in my mind where I, I was so desperately upset that they couldn't do what I thought they were supposed to do. 
And it's not something that I resent them for now. And it's not something that I'm angry towards them for now. And I, and that, and that anger was really quite short lived and it was mostly frustration, um, and pain because, you know, a bit of a big situation, (laughs) but, um, this song for me was kind of, it spoke to the part of my brain that was crying out for answers where it was like, you know, please, you know, mother, father, please explain to me how, you know, this is the case and the world is this way and things can be terrible. And it was also, especially because I came to this song, um, like later, like it, it, it latently articulated all of the things that I felt when I was 16, 17, but I came to it when I was like 21, 22. So it, it, in hindsight, was able to articulate things that I'd felt when I was a lot younger and simultaneously was able to kind of grapple with intense emotions that because of just life I hadn't quite developed the resources and was still struggling to develop the resources to cope with and I found myself in serious situations pretty much my whole life ever since that ever since I was 16 I've always found myself in progressively more and more in in very intense relationships even if they were short-lived and you know lots of passion and and anger and and frustration and difficulty I I do do nothing by half measures and I do nothing easily and I seem to for many years I picked all the wrong people like relentlessly it was kind of it was a little pathetic (laughs) but but romantically and from a platonic standpoint or oh wow okay I had a really hard time after Kevin because I didn't like you were ditched by everybody you know like you like so and and that and that your ability continued. to learn how to, you know, develop relationships was mm-hmm. was hampered, and your uh, ability to intensify situations was was enhanced. I was always convinced that someone that people were going to leave. That was just the way that I was wired from that point forward. God, about I guess so. So yeah, for me, this song was very much articulating the anger and frustration that I felt latently towards my parents and to, and even towards myself for not being able to turn to anybody for answers and feeling forced to find the difficult, to find the answers to the difficult questions myself when I didn't feel ready. The refrain uh, over and over and over again, we heard in this song, you know, mother, father, please explain. And I yeah. think that I, I can see like again, it's a little on the nose, but a 16 year old Ariel that is just like, you know, spinning herself into the ground with, with confusion and anxiety and, and just wanting someone to course correct, Mm -hmm. you know, help them get on the right path to explain what the fuck am I feeling and Mm -hmm. going through. And And even like 20, 22 year old me who was engaging with this song for the first time, who is realizing just how much growing up and how much learning she's had to do on her own since that happened with basic stuff like how to engage in relationships and how to do things my experience with relationships started off fucked up when you consider that that was my first boyfriend and everything after that became because it was like my parents just didn't know like, how do we talk to her about, like, love and sex now? She's been through love, and now she's been through immense loss, and it's the type of loss that they've never experienced. And it was kind of this moment of just, like, they almost pulled back. 
which realistically was the right thing to do because they couldn't comprehend how I was feeling. Nobody could. It was, I, I had changed. I had developed, but I had developed beyond my learned experiences ability to, to process how I had developed. Like it, I moved, I moved beyond myself, you know, in the blink of an eye. So I had to catch up to myself and I had to do a lot of learning on my own and a lot of, you know, they couldn't tell me about relationships. They couldn't tell me about what's normal and what's not because my life was never going to be normal ever again. And it wasn't. And I honestly, I, I'm so fucking grateful for that because I've, because of everything that I went through so young and because of having to learn about love and life and sex and all of these things through my own lens without any guidance or advice or input, I was able to really get a feeling for life and get a feeling for myself and who I am and what I want and how life should feel for myself. And I've always been very good at identifying that because of everything that I've been through. So I'm I get, there's a strange catharsis in, in not, I guess not even listening to that song, but in processing the feelings that that song reminds me of.
So there's a lot going on in that song. Just a little. Um, <laughs> from a production standpoint, mm-hmm. it's really wonderfully produced. Uh, that's one of my favorite albums it, it's, of all time. That's that's really solid work. I mean, you, you've got that bass drum groove that starts the song and mm-hmm. the drum stays steady through the song. Even when we go into the bridge and you can start to hear the soft strums of the acoustic guitar mm-hmm. and we get into some piano work. You know, you you ultimately end up coming back to that um, mm-hmm. that drum bass groove at the end, and it's wonderful. It's really wonderful and powerful. And you know, her 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 voice and her work. Forget about lyrics for a moment. Mm-hmm. Just the the cadence of that song and the cadence of of what she brings to the table is is really powerful. Oh yeah. But then you start to listen to what she's saying. You know, she's she's spitting some venom by the end. She's fucking angry. Yeah. So talk to me about, you know, what Why? this song does for you mm-hmm. and how it does it. So for me, this song is it's righteous. It, it's, it's righteousness. It's righteous anger. It's righteous. It's it's righteous indignation. It's it's justification. It's validation. It's it's so many different things. Um and a lot of it actually stems from various different things, past relationships um, that have gone badly, relationships that were maybe emotionally abusive, um, being undervalued, mistreated. And a lot of it unromantically stems from actually my engagement with the community as a female film critic. I have, as, as many other women have, been subjected to a lot of pretty shitty behavior at the hands of men in the industry to the point where I've had men who can who who referred to them who referred to me as a friend for many years turn around and start bad-mouthing me to anyone in the Toronto film community who would listen to the point where they started coming to me saying you need to know that so-and-so is saying x y and z I've had them call me a bitch. I've had them call me uptight. I've had them call me a fucking prude because that's relevant. I've had I, I, I've had everything fucking thrown in my face. I've had people say behind my back that the only reason I get anywhere is because I'm pretty. I've had people say that I don't know what I'm doing, that I'm an idiot, that I'm useless, that I'm completely pathetic. I've like you name it and they've said it about me. And that is they're throwing stones the, oh they they're, they're trying i'm i'm the one throwing the fucking stones now and that's the thing oh i love I that am, i love that like i'm i'm not and that was the thing is that if, you know when you get to this soft refrain of you know oh mother i didn't know life was this hard and there i when i first started getting into the community you know i'm all wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and yeah take me in under your wing teach me and then when i start to actually do well and go off on my own it was endless amounts of resentment and isolation and alienation from the men in the industry who had helped me because it was like, no, no, you need to be forever indebted and grateful to me. Fuck. I helped you. Did, did, who do you think you are? You owe me. And it was this bullshit. And that just fucking pissed me off. And at first it was very difficult for me to kind of wrap my head around because I felt I was saddened by that and I was hurt by it. I didn't feel angry yet. I just felt sad and hurt and a little betrayed and like, 
I thought you wanted me to do well, and that's why you were helping me well, in the were, first you place. Were, you were colleagues with these people, and suddenly, well, exactly. suddenly they didn't want to be colleagues. No. They wanted to be, I don't know. Um, they didn't want a woman to rise above them, and they, didn't, they especially didn't want a, a younger woman to rise above them, and they especially didn't want a younger woman they had helped to rise above them and to supersede them. And the fact is, and I say this with full knowledge of my talents and abilities, and please do not mistake this for arrogance because it's not. And Jamie, you know me well enough to know that I'm not an arrogant person. I can be confident, but I'm not arrogant. I am really good at what I do. I know I'm good at what I do. Sometimes I don't believe it. The anxiety gets in the way. And I think, and I believe some of the shit that's been said about me. I'm pathetic. I'm bad at my job. I don't know what I'm doing. I can't write for shit. And in those moments, yeah, I miss deadlines. In those moments when the anxiety gets crippling. That's the negative self-talk. Exactly. For sure. Yeah. And it prevents me from doing what I can do. But knowing what I, what I am capable of, I am good at what I do. And it's terrible that your negative self-talk was ultimately personified, you know, Mm -hmm. by, by by, others, by by people. Like that's, that's terrible and horrible and manipulative. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I take a great deal of satisfaction now in hindsight and well after the fact in knowing that I can write circles around those sons of bitches.
So that's Paula Cole, and that's Feel in Love. Mm-hmm. And that is um, pretty wonderful stuff. Mm. Care to share? Yeah, I do. Um, this is probably one of my favorite sexier erotic songs, like hands down. And the reason why I picked this is both because I find it empowering, but also because it reminds me very much of how much of a struggle connecting with my history with sex and my sexuality has been. So actually a couple of things. This is, this is going to be a, a little bit more loaded than I had initially intended it to be, but that's fine because that's the point. Um, so I guess first off, I, I'm not heterosexual. I'm actually pansexual. And that's something that I've spent the majority of my life hiding from. And that's because when I was... You always, you always felt it or, oh, yeah. or knew it. But. I, I, I didn't know that that's what it was. I struggled with kind of trying to think, you know, am I bisexual? Like, what's going on when I was younger? And I shortly after Kevin, actually, um, I was seeing somebody else. I was dating this guy. This was like several months later, like probably a, like that maybe... Yeah, probably within the first year. But I was seeing, I was dating somebody else. And I started recognizing that I wasn't, I was feeling kind of different things towards him. But that I was also feeling different things like around and unrelated to him. And remembering stuff that I had felt beforehand. I think the first crush I ever had on a girl was when I was in grade eight. And I felt it the same way that I had felt it for boys. And I was really confused. Um so obviously I didn't do anything. It didn't help that she was one of the popular girls and she teased me all the fucking time. So that was traumatic. (laughs) But, um, I told this guy that I wasn't sure how I felt and that I thought maybe it was possible I was bisexual, but I wasn't sure. And his reaction was to get mad at me, to yell at me, and then to try and force me to sit down and watch lesbian porn to tell him how it made me feel. So my immediate reaction to trying to come out and grapple with how I felt was basically abuse. And it, God, that is fucked up. That yeah. Is, yeah. It was really fucked up. And it made somebody me... Sh- that you, you trusted this person. I did. I completely trusted this person. And oh. I trusted this person with something that I still didn't understand and that I was confused with and that that was causing me pain. Right. And that was right after feeling such immense pain with losing Kevin. So I was still, I was still raw and confused and that that was the reaction so I shut up about it for a very long time and I've never been with a woman I've, I've made out with women before but I've never been with a woman but that that event for me was very traumatic because it made me it helped reinforce to an extent my preference of men and it helped me and I say helped I mean that loosely but it it it, it made me really afraid of engaging with women that way I a friend of mine who is bisexual we were talking about this and she was saying that you know she does like men and women but she feels much more comfortable around women there's an energy that she gets from men that that makes her very nervous and so she's less she's more reluctant to even engage with with men um 
Now, for those listening, if you're trying to think about, well, doesn't that mean that she's more of a lesbian? No, it doesn't. Bisexuality is still a thing. You can be bisexual and and only have relationships with members of the opposite sex your whole life. That doesn't mean you're not bisexual. It's not based on what you do. It's based on who you are. And it's internal. And that's really important because the... the the suicide rates alone amongst bisexual people are higher than any other quotient, uh, probably maybe only rivaled by trans people. And when you and the rate at which people come out is the lowest amongst bisexuals because people constantly try and dissect and quantify and qualify all of it. And it just it's agonizing and you just don't want to do it, which is why for me, I didn't come out until I was 29. I didn't start talking about it until like a year ago. And give or take, it might have actually been a little bit longer now that I think about it, but and you're somebody that uh, you can trust your your brain to work through things mm-hmm. and to process things. And yet, even you, you know, waited that kind of time before you trusted again to go, you know, to, to, to make it public or mm-hmm. to make it anybody's, um, uh, to make it anybody aware of it that, that didn't necessarily deserve to be aware of it. Well, exactly. Yeah. And so for me, like I, in regards to the way my friend feels about men versus women, for me, it's the same but opposite. It's I feel much more comfortable physically around men because, to be fair, that's the majority of my experience. So it's likely just due to familiarity. But I, I feel anxious and uncomfortable around the women that I'm attracted to if I'm attracted to them. So I, I've, it's almost through the trauma of coming out that there's a part of me that it's possible that I'll explore that aspect of my life at some point, but I don't feel compelled to, and I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. The very act of being out and being outspoken about how I feel and who I am is honestly the most cathartic and therapeutic thing that there is. So Sure. Yeah. It can be an intellectual just exercise it doesn't need to be you you don't need to actually go to the gym for this one well I felt for years like I was hiding something of myself and like I was hiding it from not just the people in my life that I love but I was hiding it from me because because you were well exactly yeah I was afraid of it and I was afraid of it because of the abuse that I'd suffered for trying to be open about it and and that is abuse like that there's no mistake about that forcing someone to do those things is is abusive and it it, it messed with me for a long time. So, but on top of that, um, I am also a survivor of sexual assault. And three times, one of which, the most recent, that was about seven, seven and a half years ago, was rape. And it was, it took me a long time to understand what had happened to me. So when you say this took, a uh, you know, a period of time, this was seven and a half years ago, was... The most recent uh, was when I was raped. Right when you were yeah. raped, yes. Um, I hate the word, but I'm getting better it's, at it's, using it's, it. It's a, it's such a stabby word. It is. You know? It is, and it took me a long time to be able to say it. Mm. And I'm, but it's, it's, it's like what you know what we've been saying about like, and I say we generally, not just you and I, about you know the more we tell our stories, the easier it gets to tell our stories, and the easier it feels for others to tell their stories. So the more I say I was raped, the more I feel comfortable, well, not comfortable. But I understand what you mean. The more secure I feel in using the words that I hate to describe what's happened Absolutely. to me. Absolutely. Ariel, you have a confidence in the way you're telling this story 
and you have there is a there is a, something tangible i don't know what it is about the way you say you know i am a sexual assault survivor that is that is very real and um i don't mean that from a you know from a credibility standpoint i mean that from a from a uh, a healing perspective you have started healing and i don't know if you're done healing i don't know if you ever i i mean i can't fathom i don't know if you ever if 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 that's a finite type of thing (laughs) well and that's actually that's that's a really beautiful one thank you that's really lovely of you to say but two it's actually a really beautiful way for me to segue into why it connects to this very sexual song all right because there's probably some people who are kind of thinking there's a bit of a disconnect here you're talking about like your abuse at coming out as being pansexual and sexual abuse and being raped and all of these things, how does that connect to a song that's so positively sexual? And, and here's how I actually recently did an interview for dork shelf or the shelf about a a film called all about Nina. And I spoke to the director Her names, Eva Vivas, and she's a survivor of sexual assault. And that factors hugely into the film. And we were talking about our shared experiences and all of these things. And we also, and I asked her about, and I talked to her about how important I felt it was that she represented female pleasure from the female gaze. Aside from the fact that it's being done from the female gaze, it's putting female pleasure at the center of the story. And that's huge because we don't get that enough. It's usually female pleasure from the from the male gaze, which is not female pleasure. And many women will attest to that. Like, they'll agree with me on this one. So we're, we're talking about that and everything. And then we start talking about the concept of experiencing sexual pleasure as a survivor of assault. And the fact that it's, it's a really hard concept to wrap your mind around. And within the first f- couple of years, few years after, um, after a being raped and acknowledging that I had been raped I shut down physically and I didn't think that I could be open physically ever again and we talked about that and she was saying the same thing yeah you think that you're you you know your vagina's gonna fucking close up and you're never gonna need to use it again and sex is just off the table and sexual pleasure is off the table because that's been taken from you against your will and you're never gonna have that connection again and this song for me for many years before, and definitely after, represent, uh, there are some women who are uh, burlesque dancers or strippers who actually teach courses in striptease for yourself, kind of. It's, this, it, it's a way of reconnecting with your body in a physical and sexual way that makes you feel kind of re-empowered with, how, with your sexuality and with the, the, almost like re-allowing yourself to feel desire. And that's really therapeutic and really important. And I've never done anything like that. But for me, this song is that. And it was a way for me to really process and think about the fact that I am, not only am I allowed to, and not only am I entitled to feel sexual again and derive pleasure from that feeling of, sec- of sexuality and from loving my sexuality, but I damn well deserve it. And that all women do. And sometimes it takes a bit longer to reconnect with that healthy desire and that healthy sexuality. Um, and I'm very lucky that it's, that it's only taken me. I'd say it probably took the better part of about five years. So it's very recent that I've started to feel open again. And it is so empowering and so emboldening. 
And for the first time in a long time, I feel so fully reconnected with myself that way that it is just, it feeds the confidence from the previous song no, can, and the uh, righteous indignation. And The song know. is dripping with sexuality. Oh, I mean, yeah. She it is, is about sex. It is, is just breathless. sex. She is, during the, the verses, she is, you have to really lean into it. She is pushing right up to the very edge of her vocal range. Uh, because she's singing softly, mm-hmm. but breathlessly. So mm-hmm. she's, she's you know, almost slipping it out of her vocal range mm-hmm. in, in doing this, you know, act. Um, but there's there's pleasure in that. Mm-hmm. You can hear it. You can hear it. And then there is, um, a, you know, sort of a release with the chorus as she as she goes back to full strength, yep. singing, you know, with her full with her full and she has power she can wail yeah of course oh yeah and it is such a powerful song and Mm -hmm. it's such a powerful message and i feel so fortunate to be able to connect with it and consequently myself through it after all these years
So since this is an audio medium, you can't tell that I've been bawling my eyes out. <laughs> I was going to say I need to, you know, I've got this <coughs> tackle box now for all my audio gear. I need to make sure to put some tissues in there for, <laughs> for next time. Mm. Even though, you know, I'm not as enveloped in this song as you are. It is this you're getting you, you picked a really great song because you're getting all of Peter Gabriel in this mm. You're getting that soft acoustic, um, really weighted, heavy gravity Peter Gabriel. Mm -hmm. And then you're getting, you know, in the uh, when the time changes Mm -hmm. and it goes into the more uh, electronic, Mm -hmm. you know, Peter Gabriel. So you're getting a little bit of everything in that song. And you're getting all of his pathos. And you're getting. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Again, without context, that's a, you know, there's, there's a lot going on in that song, Mm -hmm. but I'm hoping you can provide some context context (laughs) as to why you chose this song to bring today. Well, this song means a lot to me and I, I kind of use it as a bit of a tool in very specific circumstances, um, usually pertaining to death and loss. And that initially came up when my uncle passed away many years ago. Um, And that was, he had been sick for a long time. He had malignant melanoma and we spent, he spent years going through treatment and it spread, it spread to his his brain and his spine. Um, And eventually those became inoperable and it just became a, a waiting game. And so we, he was in palliative care at the hospital that I worked at and that my mom worked at for four months. And we spent four months watching him slowly deteriorate and and preparing for everything and no amount of prep can really brace you for the impact of of the inevitable it's an interesting choice of words you use when you say prepare because it it truly is it's like uh, you know we we think you can make a list Mm -hmm. and uh you know adhere to this sort of list or or whatever but Mm -hmm. there's nothing that prepares you for for death for death and 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 understanding mortality you mm-hmm. know i don't want to sound too heavy here but like this is what this all comes to there's a lot of existentialism right like oh yeah just, what the fuck are what is like well exactly you know? 
And we, with this, like it, it was, it, it was almost difficult because I think if, if, if he had passed away quicker, if he had gone into palliative care and we'd had like a couple of weeks, maybe a, a month, it, it, we might have been able to really grapple with the prospect of the loss. With and him. Exactly. And, and, and come to terms with it and then have it happen and then live in having come to terms with it and grieve and feel the pain. But because he, it was months, you almost get used to having them again. And it almost backfires. And it becomes almost an unraveling of all of the mental gymnastics you've been doing to try and brace for the impact. You, well, can't... you, learn, you learn how to live with this person in an altered state. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went through well, the exactly. same thing with my father. It was like he was in the hospital for three and a half months after a bypass surgery that, you know, that didn't go very well. Mm-hmm. And we just sort of got used to the fact that he was, you know, not what he once was, but he was now something new. And then when that was taken from us, it was like, I I mean, I can't say that I relate because I don't know, but but that's that's, what it felt like. It felt like I learned. You relearn how to engage with them in that capacity. Yes. As opposed to learning to let go, you're learning to live with them differently. Yes. And so that makes the loss just as hard, if not harder. Yeah. And that's basically what happened. And I want to say this was around the time this album came out give or take. So it's been probably about 10 years. Sure. But we were listening to it. My, I was in the car with my dad. He had just passed away. and My, my uncle. Uh, my dad is alive and well. Um, so he had just passed away. And I think we were driving to my, to my dad's house. And this album was on. And we, and the song came on. Jesus and Christ. And it, but it was perfect. Mm. It was painful, but cathartic. And it was this moment. And I, I spoke a bit about at the beginning of the show about how I, I'll use film a lot as a way to channel how I'm feeling and direct it and focus it so that it's easier to process. Of course. And that was this song for me in so many ways, because I was feeling all of these things and not being able to grapple with the idea of what life would be like without him and how our family would change, and how unfair it is that life still has to continue, but that that's the reality of things. And with everything that I had been through when I was younger, and having a hard time grappling with that notion of loss, and the idea that life continues, and life goes on, and that being a really consistent underlying theme. And for me, this song channels so much of those feelings to the point where now, if, like, it seems to come on at like the most perfect times that are probably inopportune. But like recently, and one of the reasons why I was crying so much at the end of listening to the song, it's the upbeat part at the end that really demolishes me. And uh, it was recently, it was in July, July 25th, that my aunt passed away. And we were very close. And this was my mom's youngest sister. My mom's the middle then there's an older sister and she had had a 25 year battle with uh, needing transplants. She'd had a liver transplant and then a kidney transplant and now needed a new liver uh, like 25 years after the initial transplant, which happens. And, but your levels have to get bad enough in order for you to be able to make it to the top of the list to actually get the transplant. But, um, so she had made it to the, 
she was sick. She was very sick for a long time. And then she finally made it to the top of the list because she was bad enough. But the problem is, is that especially after be- having two transplants, it was, she was too far gone. She was too unhealthy to actually undergo the surgery. She developed an infection Ugh. and she had to be put in ICU and she was intubated. And this was two days after being put at the top of the list. And she developed the infection. Three days later, they had to pull the plug. So it all happened very fast. And it was all around the time that we were so hopeful. And and she was young. She was 55. That's very young. And so that was incredibly painful. And is still very fresh. And I miss her so much. Because she was always so positive and so loving and giving. There are so many people that I know now that I wish I could have introduced her to and that I wish could have met her. Because Claudia, her name was Claudia. She was just this beacon of light and hope and tough love sometimes. Sure. And she was so magnificent in everything that she was and in everything that she did. And I was doing, I'd mentioned, I think I mentioned that I had done a, a set visit in July for a magazine that I'm writing for, and it was in Hamilton. Well, the set visit was the day after she passed away and was the day before the funeral. And so on my way driving home at six o'clock in the morning from Hamilton after everything, after 14 hours on set, I'm listening to music because I'm exhausted and I'm trying to keep myself up. And this song comes on. And it was this... I hadn't, because everything had happened so quickly and I still had to work, I hadn't really allowed myself to feel how much losing her hurt. And this song came on and it was like the floodgates opened and I'm singing this song at the top of my lungs, driving on the highway and I'm crying and I'm bawling and I'm just feeling everything all at once. And then I felt a little bit better. It's so cathartic for me because it channels everything. And it's also kind of a reminder. And it's very much the way that she thinks is that, you know, life is just a series of movements and stages. And we lose people. And we have to remember that life continues and life goes on. And it's in the small details. And it doesn't have to move on. You don't have to be ready to move on in big sweeping ways you don't have to be perfect again you don't have to do anything it's in the it's in the people that you meet it's in the things that you do it's in daily errands it's in small little minutia and that that's life and all of that life continues even after someone dies and that's and as an adult I have the skill set to be able to really grapple with those ideas and how what death really is and what loss really feels like. And in a way, the song also lets me grieve for, you know, 16-year-old me who didn't have the physical resources to be able to really understand that at the time. The last song is My Lady's House by Iron and Wine. Talk to me a little bit (laughs) about this song. I thought we would end on a bit of a light note. Okay. Because, God forbid, Ariel be really serious and emotional about talking about her life. Hey, we've had, we've had, a, we've had a heavy discussion, It's been right? heavy. Yeah. As how, I, again, I don't do anything by half measures, and I'm a pretty intense person. So, um, 
this song for me is hope and love and romance and it's everything it's everything To me, that song is how I hope someone thinks of me someday. Because it's how I think of myself to an extent, and it's how I hope someone will eventually see me. It's so full of love, and 
That's a wonderful, <laughs> that's a wonderful way to feel, isn't it? Well, that's the thing. I hear this and I just see this, I see this couple. I see love and I see, I see passion and I see, you know, can't live without each other love. That's just all consuming in the most healthy way and mutual admiration and mutual respect and growth and compassion and caring and just what love is and and I want that and I want someone to think of me that way well I certainly don't want to <laughs> step on that sentiment at all <laughs> uh, it's been a it's been a long road I'm sure for you to be able to not only think that but to to utter that and believe it and feel worthy of that idea you've been through a lot and i have never stopped wanting that and specifically pertaining to this song i've been listening to this song for well over 10 years i've been listening to this song long before anything else had ever happened to me and that feeling has never gone away and that desire and that yearning has never gone away and that's one of the things I admire most about myself is that despite all the pain, despite everything that I've been through, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, I still believe in love. I still want love. I still know that it'll happen. And I still can't wait. And I don't have any anxieties about it. And I kind of love that about myself. And I really hope that somebody else does too. <laughs> yeah? Mm-hmm. Oxley, take us home. Fuck you, you're drunk and acting tough. I know you're sad you're not the only one who feels like that now. That was my conversation with Ariel Fisher. Do you see what I mean about hopeful? It was a very difficult story that Ariel came in and shared. She was very brave, and I commend her a great deal. I love the context that we got from the songs that she has used to to cope and to externalize some of these really strong feelings that she has worked through over the years. So kudos to you, Ariel Fisher. That is a wonderful thing that you did today. And I hope that there is somebody out there listening that heard your bravery and is encouraged by your courage and will take the next step that they need in their journey to wellness. You can find links and access to all of Ariel's work through her Twitter account, at AFIS8, that's A-F-I-S-8. She's a wonderful podcaster. She's a great writer. And, you know, the passion that she exhibited in this episode today definitely comes through in her work. That is it for this month. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for rating and reviewing us on iTunes. And I just want to thank you for encouraging me 
to take a spot on this soapbox that I've built and share stories from really brave people. That's it. I'll talk to you next time. Be well and stay safe. A show of strength is a movement where I try to encourage courage. You can support a show of strength by visiting our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash a show of strength. For as little as $1 a month, you can join the movement and help make a difference advocating for mental health in the greater Toronto area and beyond. For questions, our social, and to subscribe, rate, and review the various shows we produce, you can visit www.ashowofstrength.com. Dot com.